This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. WBUR Podcasts. Boston. Allison, tell me a little bit about your closet. Is there perhaps an object that no longer sparks joy, one you really want to get rid of? I would say I have many objects like that. Um, Basically, the entire section of my closet devoted to professional clothing, which I sometimes refer to as the dry cleaning section. But since the pandemic, I haven't really had to wear many of those things, and I would love to be able to get rid of them permanently. I'm talking to arts and culture journalist Allison McCabe. And Allison is not alone in her struggle to part ways with the artifacts of her life. A few years ago, she noticed that everyone seemed to be trying to master the art of tidying up, once and for all. First, there was the KonMari method from Japan. Hi, I'm Marie Kondo. I'm so excited to introduce my tidying course. The KonMari method is that you are organizing everything, you're sorting it, you're organizing it, you're deciding what to keep and what to get rid of. And the criterion is that if it doesn't spark joy... You should thank it for its service and then send it on its way. Then came something called Swedish death cleaning. Yeah, that's pretty grim. So the idea behind Swedish death cleaning is you collect all this stuff and then, God forbid, you should die. Then your loved ones will have to come and sort it all out and decide what to keep and what to get rid of. But you're going to lift that burden from them by doing it in advance. It's sort of like an advanced directive for your stuff. So many trends. What is all this decluttering supposed to do? You know, I think the idea is that if you get rid of the stuff, you can achieve a kind of spiritual decluttering. You know, you can lift a burden off of your loved ones and also save the planet. But as I've discovered, getting rid of your baggage isn't quite as simple as getting rid of the bags. Welcome to Last Scene, a show about people, places, and things that have gone missing, and whether or not they can or even should be found. From WBUR, Boston's NPR station, I'm Nora Sachs. So far, most of the episodes in this season have been about things that get lost unintentionally, like a planet, a tiny endangered fish, or a stranger's ashes. But today, Alison McCabe invites us to consider those things we try to lose on purpose. This is episode eight, The Emotional Lives of Everyday Objects. Okay, so here's a bunch of papers, some art supplies in the box with the papers. When you ask most people about sentimental objects, they'll first think about childhood toys, trophies, diplomas, wedding albums, things that are loved and saved because they're attached to happy memories. But look behind anyone's closet doors and you're bound to find other things lurking in the shadows. That BFF mug from someone who's no longer your BFF. That employee of the month plaque from the summer job you hated. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Oh my gosh, look over here. I just found the old box of mixtapes. That old mixtape your first girlfriend made you right before she broke up with you. There is always something there to remind you. 
We should be able to just get rid of this stuff, right? But it's often complicated. Certain objects are a marker of who we are, or were, or wanted to be. They're heavy with meaning. John Griffiths recently discovered how difficult it is to let them go. Hi, this is uh, John Griffiths, and yes... John is a TV critic and the founder and executive director of Gallica, the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics. When John was growing up in California in the 60s, it was just him and his mom living in an apartment in his grandma's backyard. But when he was eight, things changed. And, uh, and she met this guy and, uh, who had eight kids from his previous marriage. I just wasn't like the other kids. They were kind of wild and rough and fun and, like, you know, having parties. And I was this little toe-headed gay kid that was kind of shell-shocked. Eventually, John told his mother he wanted to move back and live with his grandmother. She said okay. He had an apartment in the backyard to himself, and gradually things got better. When he grew up, John became a high-profile entertainment journalist. I was sort of rising as a a celebrity journalist, interviewing all sorts of people, you know, uh, know, for the cover of uh, Glamour or InStyle or Cosmo as well. He got a cool L.A. apartment. With coffered ceilings, an old Spanish hardwood floors. And And a really cool Art Deco sofa, a hand-me-down from a neighbor. So cool. She said it had been in a bank in the 30s. And uh, so we moved it down. She said, do you want this? And I said, sure. And we moved it down the stairs. She was upstairs and uh, got it into my apartment. And it just made everything look amazing. And it was like out of a David Lynch movie. It was blue velvet, dark blue velvet. It was sort of a slanted back and really thick or wide arms that you could sit on. I think it made people feel like they were stars or something, or or it just made people pose. It was that kind of couch. And I love that couch, you know. A lot of, you know, interesting things happened on that couch. It was just the centerpiece of so many parties and... and uh, Maybe too many parties. When John decided to get sober, he moved to a new place in the Hollywood Hills, a nice big house with a backyard. His neighbors suggested that he get a rescue dog. I saw Derby, and I was just like, oh, my God, she looks so sad. And, and, but her, the, the kind of, you know, not manipulative, <laughs> but looking head down, but eyes up, and then would sort of avert, like, I know you're not going to pick me or like me. John took Derby home. Then he went back and brought home another dog, Watson. The three of them became a family, the couch as much theirs as his. Derby had a special blanket on the couch, uh, and Derby would just sleep there and, and get really cozy and sometimes just like marvel at Watson's cuteness from a distance. And, and uh, yeah, and Watson wasn't much of a lap dog, but he would get on the couch too. I soon like thought, oh, this is how it used to be. We're having parties on the couch, but the parties are with my doggies. John and his dogs went for daily park runs, trips to the beach, and of course they all love TV time. But Derby's health began to fail, and she spent more and more time alone on that couch, curled up in her favorite spot. John knew it was time to say goodbye, so he decided to have Derby put down at home, where she'd be most comfortable, on the couch. Afterwards, he regretted the decision. I would look at that couch, and it became a symbol of this, you know, I would sort of see that lifelessness, you know, that life 
to lifelessness. John thought about getting rid of the couch. Who wouldn't? But then he got a new dog, Guapo. Guapo loved that couch. He just, uh, he, and if I would sit on it, he would just, or even a friend or whatever, he would just jump up and, and uh, sometimes it was a little too ha- tall for him. He, you could tell he was trying to gauge how to get up best and, and he would kind of fall asleep in between the pillow cracks like that, you know, there were three big pillows and he would just settle himself in the dip between two pillows. Guapo helped John cope with losing Derby, but there were more changes to come. John's mom is in her mid-80s now. She was living in Grandma's old house when the pandemic hit. John decided to sell his house and move into the backyard apartment they once shared. Of course, John planned on bringing the dogs and the couch. But a few days before the big move, Guapo had a heart attack. He died in John's arms. John says the couch looked great in his new place, underneath the glass brick window next to the vintage Tortier lamp, And yes, it was probably worth about five grand if he had it refurbished. And yes, it reminded him of how far he'd come. I had that couch for about 25 years, and it was beautiful. And I I look back at it with admiration. You know, it was like a a giant, uh, you know, tree with different, you know, uh, rings or whatever. Uh, My wild party days, my uh, early sobriety, my dogs. But rather than looking back at his life, John realized the only way to move forward was letting it go. The only way to reframe the transition from one of loss to one of possibility. I just looked at it and I go, this is, if I'm going to change things, I can't look at that couch and think of the dogs that have passed. I gave it away. John gave the couch away to a guy who said he planned to fix it up and flip it at a vintage store or sell it online. I said uh, goodbye to that beautiful couch. Rather than making John feel stuck in the past, now the couch can be part of someone else's future. It's probably sitting in someone else's living room, maybe even yours. John's story got me thinking about the lives of objects, how they end up here or there, carefully preserved or carelessly trashed, connecting us to other people's joys or sorrows, often without our conscious awareness. My vintage lace wedding dress. I love Angeline. Pink girls can't That led me to Emily Spivak, an artist and writer whose work explores the interplay of clothing and memory. My work looks at contemporary culture, um, everyday objects, and I delve into a lot of archives, and I create my own archives in my work. That work involves scouring the internet for secondhand clothing. Spivak isn't looking for items that people once bought for a special occasion, like a prom dress or a bar mitzvah suit, but what they wore when something weird, wonderful, or unexpected happened, like a blood-stained jade green ball gown she once found on eBay. The woman in the, in the eBay post talks about how this had been her aunt's And her aunt was dating a guy who was involved with the mob. And they were in Atlantic City. And they were out at some kind of event. And there was some kind of gunshot. There was some kind of, you know, someone someone shot someone in the party. And blood got splattered on her dress. 
Spivak discovered that eBay was more than an e-commerce site for buying and selling things. It was a place to share experiences. I am interested in these, like, these weird moments, you know, I was once levitated in a magic act and now I'm selling this dress. You know, Michael Jackson once touched these sunglasses and I'm never touching them again. Um, you know, just From 2007 to 2014, Spivak collected hundreds of clothing finds in an online project called Sentimental Value. At first, she just curated eBay auction posts. But then about three years into the project, she started bidding on the garments herself revealing the hidden value in otherwise unremarkable possessions. These are the jeans that my granddaughter bought for her boyfriend. And if you are dating a guy who would leave his girlfriend for his pedicurist, then these are for you. Not simply a collector, Spivak became an investor in an economy of emotions. Even though her interactions with sellers were anonymous, she says they were surprisingly intimate. These stories would just kind of show up in the mail from complete strangers. Sellers often included heartfelt letters, notes spilling over with grammatical quirks and hand-drawn emojis. Sometimes the correspondence was even more weirdly personal, like what came along with the Nirvana baseball cap once worn to a Kurt Cobain memorial. And along with it is... A little thank you, Nutrigrain bar. Spivak started showing these garments in art galleries where visitors could picture the sellers, imagine their voices, and fill in the gaps in their stories with their own experiences and memories. Sexy gothic Nada Maid's dress, size Sorel small, must see. Purchased worn in once, early 1983 and signed I wore this dress to a Berlin convention and Tom Savini down the Take a look at your own closet. Instead of just seeing rows of shirts and pants and accessories, pick out a few things you bought new or vintage. Things that were passed down to you. Things that might seem completely ordinary, but hold deep meaning for you. Now, imagine recontextualizing these items. Presenting them as a series of garments with stories. A retrospective exhibition of you. Welcome to the National Museum of Us. Press the button by the exhibit if you wish to take an audio tour. One. This 1997 baseball shirt was worn by Allison McCabe to a grad school classmate's birthday party. Two, this J. Crew black and tweed blazer was acquired by Allison McCabe circa 2003. Three, these 2017 Chuck Taylors are a replica of the pair first issued to Allison McCabe in 1987. And Next, imagine your friends and friends of your friends doing the same thing in adjoining galleries. And then at the close of the show, a gift store where everyone can anonymously swap everything, literally walking home in each other's shoes. Now let me ask you this. What if it's not just you, or your friends, or your friends of your friends, but the whole world that's connected this way? Coming up after the break, I'll show you what I mean. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party 
or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. St. John the Divine in New York City is the world's largest cathedral. I mean, this place is literally awesome. It is the size of two football fields plus a football. It is full of religious symbols. They're on the walls. They're in the windows. They're even in the smallest architectural details. There's a ton of art to take in, too, from 17th century tapestries to Edwina Sandy's 1974 sculpture of a female Christ to a massive bronze altarpiece by Keith Haring. St. John's calls the stuff the fabric. Every single element from which the cathedral is composed is part of an endless work in progress designed for contemplation. When you're walking in a cathedral and observing the various elements of a cathedral and objects within, you have a heightened sense of attention. And ritual heightens your sense of attention. And art viewing as a ritual, as an activity, is also a, a an experience of heightened attention. That's sculptor Jeffrey Schiff. About 20 years ago, Schiff was invited to be part of a group art show at St. John's. As he thought about what he wanted to create in the space, he walked into a side chapel and encountered a statue of the prodigal son, who squandered his father's fortune before returning to seek forgiveness. It gave Schiff an idea. He started by building a large wooden platform at the base of the statue, which he covered with bright yellow felt. As you're walking down the nave of the cathedral and you see this bright yellow platform, it's very surprising. Schiff constructed chambers of various shapes and sizes inside the platform. Then he asked his friends to leave objects there, things that symbolized what they most wanted to renounce. One friend rejected his anxiety by giving up his mouth guard. A couple abandoned their attachment to Star Trek by offering up their phaser. But Schiff says most of the offerings were serious. Probably because my friends were sort of embarking on middle age. There was a lot of reflection and even reckoning going on. So people were making transitions of one sort or another. Some people were making transitions from just a carefree youth into a kind of more sober middle age. One person gave up her boots that she used to wear to Studio 54 in the wild years of her youth. Someone else was remembering a marriage left long ago and remembering it through an object that had been given to her as a wedding present for that particular marriage, just as she was about to embark on her second marriage, a new marriage. 
There was a car radiator, a baseball bat, and a pair of bells. Everyday items turned into a catalog of experiences. The platform, a place to bury the pain they'd been holding. Some of the participants anonymously shared their memories in a book that had been left nearby, further releasing the objects from the attachments they'd taken on. An old lady who sold candies of a streetcar near my house in Bolivia gave me this book. I have always found it difficult to give up on friends, no matter how far apart we become. These two Santa figures were recent Christmas presents from my father, given to me in consecutive years. At every encounter with it, I've truly felt a physical closeness to And home. never an easy man became an impossible burden. Maybe I'm searching to confirm America as my home. Each year, hundreds of thousands of visitors passed through the cathedral as worshippers and tourists. They couldn't see the renounced objects at first, but as they approached the platform, they started to come into view. And you'd look into them the way you look into a box from above. And they're scattered about irregularly, so it's as if they've been thrown at the feet of the prodigal son. They, too, could participate by leaving objects in chambers that had been intentionally left open. They offered notes keychains, coins, whatever they happened to have that could stand in for the emotional burden they wanted to shed. Schiff called this project Pottersfield, a place to bury the unnamed and unclaimed. But eventually objects started disappearing from the platform too. There were musical instruments, for instance. There were articles of clothing. Um, there, was, there were a couple art, artworks uh, by friends who were artists and many objects with little or no monetary value, perhaps reclaimed by others because they are powerful emotional artifacts, symbols of human connection. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. And then everything changed because 9-11 happened. A plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. Schiff couldn't return to the cathedral until a few months later. By then, the platform was overflowing with objects and notes and prayers in many languages. What was once a collective repository for personal loss became a communal expression of grief and hope. I think people found their version of a religion in the moment to participate in the, in the peace, in the ritual. Loss always leaves a trace, a scar, a reminder of what was once there. The French conceptual artist Sophie Cal says that doesn't mean that loss can't be reframed. As you may know, the title of this podcast, Last Scene, is a reference to one of Cal's art series inspired by the unsolved 1990 theft of 13 artworks from Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I found out that where they had been stolen, there was just an empty space. And this was not an aesthetic decision. So it gave a a mise-en-scene, uh, extremely uh, interesting because it's a museum that's completely full. Uh, there is not a single space to hang anything. And suddenly, every time there was a stolen painting, you had a white space. Cal stood where those paintings were once exhibited and asked museum staff to tell her what they remembered about the missing works. 
such as Rembrandt's The Storm in the Sea of Galilee. When I was a youngster, one Christmas, a dear family friend gave me a five-pound box of candy in a tin box, and on the lid was the storm in the Sea of Galilee. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. It was my prized possession. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And the figures depicted in Vermeer's The Concert. I could hear them singing, and they sounded really private, quiet, pure. You felt like an intruder and you didn't want them to know that you were watching. She created transcriptions of their memories to be displayed side by side with photographs of the labels, empty pedestals, and wall hooks that had been left behind. She then returned to the museum again in 2012, after the frames had been restored and rehung, but the paintings were still missing. It was even more incredible because they framed the absence. Many people didn't know there was a missing painting inside those frames, they thought... So this time, Cal interviewed visitors, asking them to explain what they saw. I see my reflection, so I see my sadness. What you see is yourself. She paired their responses with images of the visitors gazing into the frames, photographed in shadow or from behind, their identities as mysterious as the whereabouts of the still unrecovered paintings. In her will, Gardner stipulated that the arrangement of the galleries could never be altered. So Cal's artworks were shown in a new wing of the museum, acknowledging the loss while creating something new from what remains. Creating something new from what remains. To honor that idea, I've come here to Greenwood Cemetery, which sits atop the highest point in Brooklyn, 478 acres looking out over the Hudson River. Leonard Bernstein is buried here. Basquiat, too. Near the main entrance, there's a marble obelisk with the inscription, Here Lie the Secrets of the Visitors of Greenwood Cemetery. This is actually another artwork conceived by Sophie Cal for a 25-year period from 2017 to 2042. Visitors are invited to take their secrets to the grave. But unlike in the movies, that doesn't mean keeping them buried inside of us. So I'm actually writing down my secret, which of course is a secret, so I can't tell you what it is. And I'm going to put it right here in with the others. It's actually kind of full, so it's going to take a second. In the stone on the bottom, we put a little slot for people to be able to put their envelope inside. Uh, Something that looks a little like a mailbox. Nobody knows what's there, and it will disappear because uh, it's in humidity. It's not opened, and yeah, it's not protected in any way, it's supposed to disappear. Allison, you just performed a letting go ritual. How did that feel? What was that experience actually like? Well, have you ever had an experience where you mailed somebody a letter and then as soon as you put it in the mailbox, you're a little bit like, oh my God, I shouldn't have done that, but it's too late? Yeah, 1,000% it happened a few months ago. Okay. It was sort of like that. You know, I knew that I was going to the cemetery. I knew that I was going to be writing down my secret and putting it in the slot. And when I got there, the slot was pretty full, and I really had to kind of, like, shove it in there. And even though I wasn't handing my secret over to another person, you know, I did have that feeling of, oh, my gosh. And, like, it was only later on my way home that I had the release. I mean... I think if you've ever tried to get rid of something, it's typically because it sparks pain. But 
if you've tried that, you know that it doesn't work unless you work through the pain itself. So taking my secret to the grave helped me realize that, you know? Um, I wrote it down, which helped me to, like, externalize my feelings and get them out. And then putting it down on paper, that kind of made it into a sort of temporary object. But it was really participating in the ritual that, that brought me to that feeling of release. It wasn't really the end point, but it, was, it felt kind of like the beginning of something new. Do you think that was artist Sophie Cal's intention all along? Like, what does she have to say about that? Well, as Cal points out, the unburdening isn't really dependent on anybody else's judgment or absolution. It's a dialogue you're having with yourself. Like, it's a chance to kind of work towards healing by recognizing the loss. Yeah, and sometimes that's enough. All that remains is what's inside of us, what makes us human, the capacity to hurt and the capacity to heal. From the Buddha to St. Francis, when we think of renunciation, it usually involves giving up things that appear to make us happy to attain some form of enlightenment or elevation. Or it's to discard things that make us unhappy as a form of taking stock of what really matters. Either way, it's often misunderstood as being about self-mastery, control, rejecting worldly things to spiritually clean house. But the truth is, our world is messy and imperfect. The solution isn't to sweep our disappointments under the rug, or box up our suffering and put it out as trash, but to let one thing become another, accepting the residue that life leaves behind so we can still experience the possibility of living. This week's episode of Last Scene was reported and written by Allison McCabe. It was produced by Allison and myself, Nora Sachs, your host and curator of the season. Nick White is our story editor. Mix, sound design, and original music by Paul Vikas. Additional production assistance from my esteemed WBUR podcast teammates, Emery Sievertson, Dean Russell, Matt Reed, Quincy Walters, and Kristen Torres. Fact-checking by Mira Rahman. Ben Brock Johnson is our executive producer. Special thanks to John Griffiths, Emily Spivak, Jeffrey Schiff, Sophie Cal, Greenwood Cemetery, the McCabe Family Players, and everyone else who lent their voices to this piece. To learn more about Allison's work, check out her website, allisonmccabe.com. That's A-L-L-Y-S-O-N-M-C-C-A-B-E.com. If you want to know more about this episode and see show notes, go to our website, wbur.org slash last scene, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at last scene podcast. Pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing by dropping us a line at lastseenwbur at gmail.com. Coming up next in the series, a story about the Jesse James of community theater and his vanishing act. So last year I worked on a story about how you disappeared. And I was wondering if you would be willing to talk to me about that. No, thank you very much. No, okay. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>